0: welcome back to the horrors hi i'm elise i'm shay
1: and here we are installment number three of our haunted house series that's correct and this is the other book that i read when i thought we were gonna have a literary podcast
0: (laughs) i forgot you read this
1: (laughs) yeah the amityville
0: horror 2005. Yes, this is the 2005 version, not the original 1979 version or any of its seven sequels. <laughs>
1: I didn't know it had seven sequels. It has
0: so, it has like a full-ass franchise. Wow. Yeah, this is the remake ala 2005, ala Ryan Reynolds, ala crazy editing that I can't wait to talk about. Okay. <laughs> And we figured if we were going to do a haunted house series, we might as well go back to one of the most
1: infamous. Hell yeah.
0: But before we get into the movie, obviously, there's a lot of context that comes with this movie in terms of that based on a true story bit and the crime that has to go along with some of the origins of the plot of this movie. We're going to delve a little bit into true crime territory and then pivot right back. So talking about some of the crime and controversy that kind of sparked the original 1979 movie and the book and everything like that. This comes from the article, The Real Amityville Horror, Chilling Facts About the Crime and Haunted House by Biography.com and also the Amityville Horror Wiki. 30 miles outside of New York City, nestled in the Long Island town of Amityville, stands the house forever linked to the Amityville horror phenomenon. On November 13, 1974, the estate was the scene of a mass murder. Using a .35 Marlin rifle, 23-year-old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. murdered his entire family while they were asleep, which included his parents and four siblings. Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr., along with siblings 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Allison, 12 year old Mark and 9 year old John Matthew. On December 4th, 1975, DeFeo was sentenced to six concurrent 25 to life sentences. DeFeo claimed he heard voices urging him to kill his family. He changed his story multiple times before his death in custody in March 2021. The likeliest story was that he was using the voices as an attempt at an insanity plea and his actions were driven by his father being abusive and Butch being under the influence of drugs and alcohol at the time of the murders. Wow.
1: Okay. 13 months later, the Lutz family purchased the home at a drastically reduced price of $80,000. Can I tell you, I did a little bit of a translation into modern funds. What is it? Okay, so that would be around like $430,000 today. That's still a lot. Yeah, but if you see the house in the movie, that shit could go for like 1.5 mil easy. You're very right. Especially in this market. (laughs) but
0: they only lasted 28 days before leaving the house. So they were in the house from December 19th, 1975 to January 14th, 1976. Their spine-tingling tales of paranormal activity are what propelled the legend of the Amityville Horror and spawned a torrent of books, documentaries, and films. Most notably, Jay Anson's The Amityville Horror, A True Story, published on September 13th, 1977, which was written in collaboration with the Lutz family, And also the 1979 film The Amityville Horror, including its seven sequels in this 2005 remake. The Lutz family, while living there, claimed to smell strange odors, see green slime oozing out of the walls and keyholes, and experience (laughs) cold spots in certain areas of the house. When a priest came to bless the house, he allegedly heard a voice scream, get out. This priest would <laughs> later go on to contradict his level of involvement with the Lutzes in interviews and testimonies. He said he went to the house. He said he's only talked to that family over the phone. Huh. There's been a lot of different things. Other paranormal activity included a nearby garage door opening and closing, an invisible spirit knocking a knife down in the kitchen, a pig-like creature with red eyes staring down at George and his son Daniel from a window, George waking up to his wife, Kathy, levitating off their bed. Sons, Daniel and Christopher, levitating together in their beds. (laughs) And George saying he woke up at 3.15 a.m. every morning, which was around the time that Ron carried out his murders. The couple was said to be bogged down in legal and financial issues, which prompted skeptics to believe that they had motive to create a fantastical story to sell to the public. After telling their story, George and Kathy both took lie detector tests to prove their innocence. They passed. Hmm. Their son, Daniel, who lives a quiet life in Queens, New York, as a stonemason, claims the house ruined his life and he (sighs) continues to have nightmares to this day. The debate about the accuracy of the Amityville Horror continues. The various owners of the house since the Lutz family left in 1976 have publicly reported no problems while living there. James Cromarty, who bought the house in 1977 and lived there with his wife, Barbara, for 10 years, commented, nothing weird ever happened except for people coming by because of the book and movie. (laughs) So that's some context on the very real crime that occurred there, the murders actually happened, but also some of the accounts of the DeFeo and Lutz families who are depicted in the plot of the film. So also some pre-plot trivia from IMDb and the Amityville Wiki. Just as with the original movie, the names of the Lutz children had to be changed in order to protect their identities. The Lutz children's actual names were Daniel, Christopher, and Missy. And the movie's children's names are Billy, Michael, and Chelsea. Except for the attic windows in vaguely Dutch colonial style, the reproduction of the house does not resemble the actual house in Amityville as it was at the time of the events that were said to have taken place. Also, because of huge tourist interest in the house, the original house has been altered and is now less recognizable. Hmm. Exterior shots for this film were filmed in Wisconsin, where the original house is in Amityville, New York. Also, while the original address of the house was 112 Ocean Avenue, it was changed by subsequent homeowners to another number in an attempt to stave off tourists. In the movie, its address is listed as 412 Ocean Avenue, where the numbers on the actual Ocean Avenue street in Amityville, New York, only go up to 399. So, not a real address. People are like, get the fuck off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> the advertising for the film claimed it was based on new and factual information from the actual case. This is a completely false claim. Yeah, I was gonna
1: say, I was like, wait a minute.
0: No, and <laughs> thus the film drew ire from George Lutz himself. Lutz demanded that MGM consult him for the film, and when they refused, Lutz sued and publicly called the film Drivel. George Lutz died a year after the 2005 film's release with the case still unresolved. And that comes from The Better of Two Evils, 15 Years of the Amityville Horror by Stephanie Cole. So that's a little sad. Obviously, large parts of this movie were fictionalized and embellished for the sake of making a horror movie where, you know, you have the very real guy who has said to have gone through these things. And he's like, "Uh, can you consult me and I can tell you what actually happened? And they're like,
1: no, no. And especially because they really take his character and make it horrible. Yes. Also, I know that this movie even changes the names of some of the DeFeo family members.
0: Yes, this movie fictionalizes a lot. So even though the movie opens with based on a true story, not just a
1: true story, but the true story.
0: It is so loosely, loosely, (laughs) because essentially in this movie, you have the father figure, George Lutz, like going after his own family. That never fucking
1: happened. So in the book, this is one of the only things I remember because it made me laugh. They do make mention of George's changing behavior, but it's stuff along the lines of, oh, for some reason, George is less motivated to go to work, and oh, George is a little bit short-tempered these days, which is like... Okay. It's funny because they're kind of making loose connections to perhaps there's some kind of supernatural effect being had on him by this house. But it's kind of like, okay, it sounds like George is just being a little lazy. Or like it's (laughs) also December, like maybe he has seasonal depression. I don't know. (laughs) But of course, this movie takes that and really runs with it. Yeah. A lot of this movie is fictionalized
0: and we'll be doing some fact checking after the fact once we go through... All the craziness that is this movie, but I think on a whole, we enjoyed it.
1: I very much enjoyed it, especially because of Ryan Reynolds. Oh, yes. He plays our daddy in a very good one at that. (laughs) Yes. And right around this time in the early 2000s, he was in the movie Just Friends. And that's one of my most favorite movies of all time. And so seeing him here, I feel like I'm getting some Just Friends energy. And I love that. It helped me, I think, get through this. That and also having read the book, like, I knew, I would say most of what was to come, and that was helpful. In terms of our ladies, we
0: have our matriarch, Kathy, who is played by Melissa George. She's also in 30 Days of Night, Triangle, and lots of Australian TV roles. She's an Australian actress. And then we have Chelsea, who is our little girl, and she is played by Chloe Grace Moretz. And we have already said that she is our horror remake queen. She is in the 2013 Carrie remake. She's in their Suspiria remake. She's in the Let Me In adaptation. The Eye, Dark Shadows. And she also voiced Wednesday Addams in the Addams Family animated films. And this role was actually her debut role at age eight. Oh, Chloe, her very first. And she does really well. I think she does a great job. She does
1: a great job. All right. So let's get into it. How do we open? We start with a flashback, which I love. It is 3.15 a.m. on the dot on November 13th, 1974. We see a teenage Ronald DeFeo Jr. awake in the middle of the night in his bedroom in the basement, grab a shotgun, venture upstairs in his house at 412 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York and murder his entire family. I guess starting with his parents and then getting to his siblings, we have a really heartbreaking moment where the last room he gets to is on the top floor. It's his little sister's room. He finds his sister who has awoken to the sounds of the gunshots. She is in her closet. Ronald Defoe makes it in. And even though little sister asks what's wrong, We get a view of the outside of the house, the gunshot goes off inside her bedroom, and so concludes the murders that start off this whole saga.
0: Then we get a crazy 2005 editing montage of police overviewing the crime where pretty much at first it seems as though Ronald DeFeo was the sole survivor of a mass murder, but then you come to find out that he did commit the murders and he's been sentenced to jail. So big montage to pretty much say he was indeed responsible for the deaths of his entire family. So then we get a time jump one year later. We are in a different part of Long Island called Deer Park. And we have a happy couple in bed. And this is George and Kathy. So this is Ryan Reynolds and Melissa George. They are kissing and cuddling and wrestling in bed. And then Michael, who appears to be like eight or nine, interrupts. There's a cute exchange between Michael and George, who we learn to be his stepdad. You know, there's like a cute moment where it's like, do I have to call you dad? He's like, no, you can call me whatever you want. And did you ever get to meet my dad? No, I never got the pleasure, pal. So we're learning that Melissa has three children from a previous marriage and that husband has died. We don't really ever learn how or why. And George is the new stepfather. Figure. And we are introduced to the other two children, Billy, who is 12 and defiant. <laughs> he does not like George Mm-mm. and does not like that there is another man stepping in on the family, which is understandable. And Chelsea is cute. She looks like she is like seven. She is a cute little girl. And that is the family that we have going on.
1: Yes. And so right as the family wraps up breakfast that Billy is not interested in eating because George made it. Kathy and George leave to go look at houses and they're going to see a listing. We get some dialogue. This area is too expensive. What are we doing up here? But they pull in and immediately Kathy falls in love with this gorgeous house that they have gone to see. It's massive, at least like three stories. It has beautiful half or quarter moon windows Mm -hmm. and almost like a wraparound porch, but it's closed in. it's kind of like a big wraparound sunroom almost in the front. It's gorgeous, right? It's the house. It's the house. They meet the realtor who is giving sketchy energy. You can tell she's withholding some information they take a tour they see a couple of sketchy things like some weird stains on the ceiling and we know the house has been vacant for 13 months now but it is a deal and even though if these two go for this house it would be really tight they technically can afford it and kathy is like george we have to live in this house he finally agrees Once they're outside, George asks the realtor what the catch is. And she finally confesses, well, 13 months ago, there was a murder. However, George and Kathy decide, you know what? We're going to move in anyway. We deserve this. We deserve this kind of life.
0: Also a very American argument because then (laughs) Kathy starts backtracking me like, well, isn't it weird to live in a house where people died? And he's like, houses don't kill people. People kill people. Take your gun reform
1: arguments and shove it. But yeah, so they're in. cute cute home video montage to kick things off. We have the family pulling up in their pickup truck. They have not a lot of things to move into this house. I get the sense that a lot of stuff is left over in that house from the previous family. They unpack and soon it's the first night in their new house.
0: Yes, they're on Ocean Avenue where I used to sit and talk with you. (laughs) (laughs) Had to throw a joke in there about Ocean Avenue. Anyway, it is nighttime and (laughs) Kathy is tucking Michael and Billy into bed. Kathy is telling Michael to, you know, say his prayers and Billy's like, nobody answered me when I asked dad to be kept alive. I'm like, oh, Oh, fuck. But Kathy is very comforting, tells him, you know, you have to give George a chance. I still love your dad. You know, he doesn't take away from your dad being your dad. He just wants to be your friend. Like She's very sweet about it. It's not like mean mom energy. It's like he would want you to be happy, all that kind of stuff. It's very sweet. It's now George and Kathy in the bedroom. The phone rings and Kathy's mother calls and George answers. And this is where I wrote, Ryan Reynolds is a good actor. (laughs) Because he answers the phone and it's his mother-in-law. And the first thing out of her mouth is like, can I speak to my daughter? And he like huddles the receiver and hands it to her. He's like, your mother really has to stop gushing over me. It's getting <laughs> to be too much. And I'm just like, I'm like, I totally believe you though. Like yours, like, this was hilarious.
1: Yes. That was maybe my second favorite Ryan Reynolds moment. Yeah. George is like, I'm fucking freezing. So he goes downstairs to add more fuel to the furnace in the basement. And he hears some like hissing vapor noises, but they sound like voices. He gets a little skeeved out, but fine, whatever, he ends up going upstairs. Later, Kathy wakes George up in the wee hours of the morning for some sexy time.
0: He is sweaty, he is dreaming, and it is
1: 3.15am, uh-huh. which is the bad hour. It is. And right when that clock strikes 3.15, all of a sudden he sees Jody, the little girl who was murdered last by Ronald DeFeo, hanging from a noose from their bedroom ceiling While his wife is riding him, and, you know, he's trying to have a good time. Oh, yes, of course. So, kills the mood, needless to say. He's like, I don't feel good. Yeah, he feels awful. The next morning, he wakes up. He's still feeling really bad. So, he goes outside and chops some wood. (laughs) This scene, this is giving me
0: insidious energy. Okay. So... Kathy's doing laundry and she hears Chelsea talking in her room. So, you know, Kathy goes up and it's like, oh, who are you talking to? And Chelsea's like, the girl who lives in my closet. <laughs> and you see Ghost Girl in the chair as Kathy walks by. You see Jody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Chelsea has drawn out a figure on an etch a sketch. <laughs> Like, is that Jody? <laughs> and it is fully a man with a top hat and a beard, and it is like the creepiest a sketch shit I've ever seen. And Chelsea's like, I'm not supposed to say who it is, and I'm like, bitch, throw the a sketch away, throw it away. <laughs> like, is that Jody?
1: No. <laughs> Do you think that's Jody? <laughs> I'm like. Girl, come on. Very unsettling. Too calm. She's too calm. I would be, I would be crying. (laughs) Like, if I sit here and weigh the options, like pro, con, having kids, one of the cons is they might be able to see spirits and freak me the fuck out. I don't know if I can
0: handle it. Like, literally, it's like, do you want Dalton, who is <laughs> unconscious, but he has left his drawings of a lipstick face demon behind? Or do you want your very alive and well daughter drawing demons on your Etch-A-Sketch? <laughs> I don't know which I want. The answer is neither. But, oh my god.
1: <laughs> So outside, George is doing his chopping wood thing when little Michael shows up with some kind of weird tool he finds in the basement. It looks like some kind of big set of pliers George responds coldly that Michael is not supposed to be down there. And because little Michael has been the one that has been showing the most affection towards George, it's really upsetting when we see Michael sort of like deflate and feel bad that he had gotten in trouble. And also, this is probably one of the first moments we start seeing George act a little bit more cold, distant.
0: He does pull him in for like a very guilty dad hug afterwards too. And like, I feel like that's something that like... I mean, I don't know anybody with a dad with a temper can relate to where it's like (laughs) he's an asshole and then later in the day he just like pulls you in for a hug because he feels really bad and Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I know that feeling all too well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So next, he and Kathy realize that Chelsea is missing. So they find her by the boathouse and scold her. Why are you down here? Not the move. What does she say? Jody took me down here. Well, first of all, the dog is barking and that's how they know how to get to
0: her. This Mm -hmm. dog is her best friend. So they find her and she's standing on like the bow of his speedboat. Oh, right, like very unsteadily, and she's holding a red balloon. I'm like, okay, Pennywise, what the <laughs> fuck is this shit? Why? Where'd you get that from? Why you got a balloon? <laughs> Creepy motherfucker. But then, yeah, she says Jody wanted to see the boat. So, you know, Kathy and George grab her and Kathy like carries her away and is like, somebody should have been watching you. Obviously aiming that at Mm. George, which is Mm. an ouch. But then we see George locking the boathouse so that none of these accidents can happen again. Until it does.
1: Until it does. That night, Michael wakes up to some weird noises. This is a cute, funny, totally relatable moment where he has to pee, but he's too scared to get up. But then eventually he does will himself (laughs) out of bed, scurries past the bedroom window. We see that the boathouse doors are open and waving in the wind. But anyway, he makes it to the bathroom. He does his thing. As he's washing his hands, we see someone fucking spooky pop up behind him. And the next thing we know, all the windows start opening up around the house Of course, at this point, Michael has already made it back and under the safety of his covers. But again, doors, windows are open around the house. And George has a dream that he kills someone. Who
0: does he dream he kills? Yeah, George wakes up to a big thud and he enters the boy's room and sees himself standing in the room with a shotgun where he has shot both the boys and then he shoots himself. But then George wakes up. It's, yes. it's a dream sequence, but he wakes up at 3.15. He looks outside and sees the red balloon flying from the boathouse, mm. which again, we didn't know we were in an It movie, but I guess we are. <laughs> he runs down to the boathouse to see the dog barking and air bubbles coming to the surface <sighs> from the lake. Mm-hmm. So he assumes that Chelsea has gone back down to the boathouse, but I'm like, you didn't check her bed before you ran outside? I mean, I guess if you think it's that emergent. Right. Either way, he yells at the dog, which it's not Harry's fault. Leave him alone. He looks up in the window to see Chelsea and the ghost of Jody looking down at him from the bedroom. He races upstairs. You know, he's all wet. He had been trying to make sure no one was drowning and there was nobody there to see that Chelsea's asleep. He goes into the closet and when he goes into the closet, Jody is being restrained
1: on the ceiling by hands coming out of the ceiling. Yes, very scary. He grabs a little stuffed teddy bear, tucks it in next to a sleeping Chelsea and goes back to bed. This is the Ryan Reynolds body shot. I mean, like dives in the water, looks around, gets out. He's glistening. He's cut. I mean, it is a sight to behold and certainly cuts through the horror of the moment. The man looks good. The next morning, Kathy wakes
0: up. There's no George next to her in bed. He is instead in the basement and sees the dog gnawing at a piece of wall, like tearing part of the bottom of the wall up. So Kathy comes down to George sitting in a chair and staring at it. Oh yeah, he's acting weird. Very creepy. She's like, why are you down here? He's like, it's the only place it's warm in this damn house. You know, she's like, oh, come on, baby, come back to bed. And he says, don't talk to me like I'm one of your kids, okay? And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> and then he goes on to blame Billy for the boathouse being open because he holds the keys to the boathouse up and says that he found the keys in Billy's room. But we don't know that that's the case because we never saw evidence of that. Good so point. Mm-hmm. What actually happened, we don't know. But then we get a time jump to day 15.
1: So, Kathy is in the kitchen and all of a sudden she turns around to see that the alphabet letter magnets on the fridge have rearranged themselves to spell catch 'em, kill 'em. And Kathy sees and is immediately upset. She goes to get George to see if he had anything to do with it, but when she comes back to show him what she saw, the magnets are all back in their original positions and there's no more menacing note. My
0: question is, I have never seen an apostrophe magnet with the alphabet <laughs> magnet, but there's two on this fridge.
1: <laughs> I was also thinking, like, what are the odds that you would have all the letters exactly for catch 'em, kill 'em?
0: Or that you have two Ks, but only one C, because catch 'em is spelled with a K. Which is going to be important later. Like, it's not spelled like catch. It's yes! Catch with a K. Catch them, kill them. And oh shit, mm-hmm. that becomes important later. But it's like, oh, okay. Like, you're going to just spell a word wrong, but you're going to make sure the apostrophe is in the right place. That's okay. That's Those okay. Ghosts,
1: they really like to give an effect. They made sure they hid all the other letters.
0: So it is nighttime and it is date night for George and Kathy. They're going to get out of the house. George is looking like shit. His eyes are bloodshot. He looks horrible. And then the craziest character in this movie arrives, Lisa the babysitter. And hello. Hello, Lisa. Hello,
1: Lisa. What the fuck? Okay, so what is she like 18, I hope. I, I, fuck, I hope. <laughs> I hope she's at least 18. She rolls up, she's got her low, low rise bell bottoms on, and her like shrug that every sixth grader wore, but it's just a shrug. Midrift is fully out. Midrift is out and about. It's like a long-sleeve shirt, but it just stops at the cleavage. It just makes me think of like, that is like what every sixth grader wore over their like winter concert dress. The shrug. But if she's wearing it, probably the same size a sixth grader would wear. And there's no top underneath it. She takes off her gorgeous fur coat and reveals this ensemble. Billy, who had previously been protesting having a babysitter because he's old enough to take care of things on his own, immediately warms up to the idea of having a babysitter. Lisa is hot and she has a full face of makeup. She has her hair long and straightened and Kathy and George don't really seem to even care. They're like, great, you're here. Found you on an advertisement at the supermarket. Bye they offer to give her a
0: tour and she's like, oh, I don't need one. I used to sit for the DeFeos. So she knows a little bit about what happened in this house prior, where at this point, the kids don't know anything, but the parents know that there were murders and that's it. They don't know the extent of anything. We see George and Kathy at the restaurant and we see that George is feeling a lot better. He seems more himself. He's got a sense of humor back. He's being very sweet to Kathy and saying all the right things about how he wants the same life as her and all this kind of stuff. Like he's just being very nice and like not as stern and aggressive as we saw him in the don't talk to me like I'm one of your
1: kids comment. Yes. Meanwhile, back at the house. I wrote Lisa is definitely giving predator vibes because she goes into Billy's room and like lays on his bed in a way that feels a little bit seductive, but maybe she's also just exercising her, I don't know, allure as like the older babysitter who knows she's hot. I don't know. It's such a confusing
0: scene. Because we have Ashley from Better Watch Out, I will never hold another babysitter. (gasps) To as high of a standard. <laughs> because Ashley from Better Watch Out would not have let any of this shit fly uh-uh. at all. Mm-hmm. But the First thing she asks Billy is, do you French? Oh, yes. Tongues, like
1: kissing. And I'm like, huh? So that's why I wrote Predator. This <laughs> kid is 12. What are you doing? Um, he seems completely captivated by her, but she keeps milking this power she has. And she starts asking Billy if he knows about the murders that took place in the house. He says no. Eventually, she somehow makes it over to Michael as well. Like, they move from Billy's room over to Michael's room where he is with Chelsea. And so she starts telling all three kids now about the murders that took place.
0: Crazy 2005 editing where, you know, she's talking about like, bang, bang, bang. And then you're seeing like all the visions of the kids dying and everything like that starts telling the story about how Ronnie went from room to room and killed all of his siblings and how Jody was killed in that closet right there and how the boys were killed in this very room and it's sick that you even sleep in here how crazy that is and then at the end she's like wow i suck at babysitting
1: i'm like clearly she doesn't give a fuck so then lisa lets us know that Jody is actually the reason that she was originally fired that little shit got me fired yeah what the fuck what? Probably because Jody was like, hey, mom and dad. <laughs> Lisa's a predator. <laughs> and she's smoking weed in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. She's smoking weed in the bathroom, which she was. We saw her with her <laughs> bong. Anyway, so then Billy dares Lisa to go inside the closet, which is the same one where Jody was murdered. So then she goes in and immediately gets locked inside. The door will not open. She can't get it open, even though it's like a flimsy... I don't even know what to call it. It's like a flimsy pantry door. Like that's what my pantry door looks like.
0: It reminds me of the closet door from Halloween because it has like the slats of the lights Mm -hmm. and everything. And better watch out has a closet like that too.
1: Billy can't get the door open. Lisa can't get the door open. She starts to kind of lose her cool. She's upset. And then a few seconds after she's in there, she encounters Jody herself and starts begging to be let out. Yeah, Jody has then put I hate her
0: on Chelsea's etch a sketch. I'm like, throw
1: the etch a sketch away.
0: <laughs> throw it away. And even Chelsea's like, you're gonna make her mad. Like creepy kid acting. Yeah, so then Jody says, Hi Lisa, look what Ronnie did, and points at the gunshot on her
1: forehead, grabs Lisa's hand, and makes her put her index finger in her gunshot wound. Next thing we know, there is an ambulance at the house. Lisa has made it out of the closet. She is outside being treated by paramedics. She is clearly trying to recover from shock. The paramedics take her away to the hospital. And Lisa tells Kathy that she had seen Jodi while she was at the house. And that Jody is supposed to be dead. Yes.
0: Ugh. So then we get a scene of Michael and Billy on the steps while Kathy and George appear to be having a stern talking to with them. They are saying the house did it. George screams at Billy and Michael for pulling a prank. And then Kathy tries to do some gentle parenting and being like, what you did was bad. But George <laughs> then berates her for trying to parent her own kids. hmm Billy then calls them out for not telling them about the murders and that Lisa told him all about them. But then George is scary. Like Ryan
1: Reynolds. It's the contacts those contacts the red contacts yeah i don't know if i would have been as scared of him without those they completely change his face
0: yeah i mean like his eyes look really bloodshot and he looks like really crazy and i like that this line is inverted from the beginning where he says houses don't kill people people kill people he then says there's no bad houses there's just bad people (gasps) so it's like what is he thinking what is he being influenced by but then george like threatens them both and scares them and makes them go to bed He's very power play in this scene. He's saying from now on, I'm going to be the one doing all the disciplining. Prior to this, we have only seen George being a gentle like himbo of a stepdad. (laughs) But now he's
1: all of a sudden this really like aggressive and borderline abusive dude. And it's scary. And the next day, we see George really kind of take things to the next level. He's outside chopping wood again, but he's making Billy like stand by and meet his little like wood caddy, carrying things to and fro. Obviously, it's a lot of heavy weight. Billy appears to be very uncomfortable, but George doesn't care. Later, I guess, is it that night?
0: Yeah, Billy has been out there all day stacking yes. this firewood and stuff. And Kathy says to him, is this discipline or is this torture? And he says, I thought it was meatloaf.
1: Oh, my God. Wait, that is one of my top three Ryan Reynolds moments. Oh, my God. I love that. Then later that night, he is taking a tub. (laughs) And all of a sudden, in a very Nightmare on Elm Street moment, he is pulled down into the tub by a pair of, like, disembodied arms, kind of like we saw holding Jody to the ceiling earlier. And he seems like he's on the brink of drowning when Kathy rushes into the bathroom, having heard his yelling gets him out of the tub enough where he could breathe again, and then holds him in her arms. So the next day, they're at the doctor's office, George and Kathy. And again, George
0: seems back to his jovial self. The doctor asks him if he is taking any narcotics. And he's like, after this week, I might consider it. (laughs) Again, being very funny, and he appears to be okay. And they give him a psychiatrist referral. And he's like, no, like, I don't need a psychiatrist referral. But it really seems that anytime he's away from this house, he's back to his confident, goofy, assured self. But anytime he's there, he goes crazy. And like Kathy starts blaming herself, but George doesn't let her. Kathy's like, oh, you know, like I made you get this house and I made you move here and all this kind of stuff. And George is like, no, this is the future we wanted. Like he's being very nice and it's very sweet. But as they're driving back, you see that Billy is babysitting. Chelsea asks to leave the table so she can go get her teddy from upstairs. But when George and Kathy arrive home, Teddy is on the ground and Chelsea
1: is on the roof. Yeah, holy shit. So they rush into action. So Kathy rushes upstairs and she exits onto the roof through the upstairs bedroom window. What is George doing? Is he down on the ground? He gets a ladder from the back of his truck and then Mm -hmm. climbs up like onto the lower roof. And
0: I thought this line was interesting. It could be a throwaway line because Billy comes out to help steady the ladder and he asks Billy, which way did they go? And it could be, which way did Kathy and Chelsea go? But I was thinking, is he seeing Jody?" Oh. It's very quick, but I remember rewinding it to make sure that's what he said. And he says they, but at this point, Kathy isn't on the roof yet. So I'm like, is he seeing things?
1: That's very, very creepy and unsettling. It seems like Kathy is going to get to Chelsea in time, but just then she teeters and falls from the roof. She jumps. Oh, fuck. Because she's like treating this thing like it's a
0: balance beam. She's on like one foot and Kathy approaches while she's like on the edge. And Chelsea says, I have to go with Jody, mommy. Oh,
1: that's right. Because Jody says something about taking her to see her dad. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, the horror okay so she jumps right she jumps these are things that i'm like convinced i think i block from my head like all these details i'm getting wrong i'm like elise you're clearly going into survival mode right now just like (laughs) rewriting this whole like i have like three pages of notes in front of me what was i doing so anyway but i do remember this part george has made it up onto that second roof balcony situation and he's able to catch chelsea on the way down george is pissed
0: George is pissed, and so is Kathy. Kathy and Chelsea have a screaming match mm-hmm. in this Florida room situation. They're arguing about Jody, whether Jody's real or not, going back and forth, and then that's where Chelsea reveals she was gonna show me Daddy. I just wanted to see Daddy. Oh. She says I can stay here and we can play together forever. Jody, stop
1: being so manipulative, girl. <laughs> stop doing that. Kathy takes this as a sign that she needs to bring in Jesus. So she asks priest Father Calloway to come to the house and bless it, hopefully to ward off or rid any negative energy that might exist, right? She's looking for like a protective measure. But before Kathy even talks to the priest, we get another scene of some torturous wood chopping where now he's having Billy hold the wood down as he takes his swing and chops, which is insane. And Billy seems like he's on the brink of tears Also, we get a scene, George is in the basement watching that movie montage we saw at the beginning when they were moving into the house on their first day, and the slides on the projector start to burn up. He also sees that there is a demon face superimposed on Billy's face. Oh my god, ew,
0: yes, ew. So 315 comes around, George is woken up to catch them, kill them, catch them, kill them, which lots of voices saying that all the time. He wanders the house. All the windows are open. The front door is open. The dog is barking. He's hearing distorted whispers. So he grabs the axe and walks to the boathouse because he's not sure what's going on. He's in the boathouse. He turns around and sees a ghost running at him. So he swings the axe, but it turns out to be the dog.
1: I know. It's so sad. He kills Harry. It's so sad.
0: He does feel guilty about it, though. You see him the next morning, and, you know, he's crying, and his hands are bloody, and you can tell he's upset with himself. So then Kathy comes in and sees him sitting in the kitchen, tells him, hey, we should leave this house. There's something wrong. George refuses, grabs her hand and squeezes it to the point where it hurts her, and says, when did you get so fucking stupid? (gasps) and then begins to throw it in her face that she's the one who wanted this house. Neither of them are going anywhere. And this, again, goes directly against what he said to her in the car on the way back from the doctor's office, where it's like, no, we're doing this together. We chose this life. I only want life when it's with you. So you can tell this is a complete 180 from what he's been saying before. Billy and Michael interrupt this argument to ask if either of them have seen Harry and George lies and says that he hasn't. Mm -mm. And this is when Father Calloway arrives.
1: Yes, so George is boarding up the windows or at least trying to nail them shut with some extra wooden nails. He's tired of them opening in the nighttime. Father Calloway walks around the house and he tries to bless it. But when he's in, it looks like maybe like the living room, one of the main rooms on the first floor. He hears noises coming from a vent, and all of a sudden, a shit ton of bees or flies. There's like buzzing like a bee, but in the book, it's flies.
0: It's flies, but it is the Wicker
1: Man scene with Nick Cage, (laughs) where it's like, not the bees, but it's instead flies. Yeah. And so they come rushing out at Father Calloway. They're all over him. He's freaking out. He hears a voice yell at him to get out. And he's like, don't mind if I do. He gets in his car and drives away. Even though Kathy tries to yell after him for some kind of explanation, he does not answer her. And she's left wondering what the fuck just happened.
0: Prior to this, too, he had seen that Chelsea was holding her teddy bear, and he had informed Kathy that that teddy bear belonged to Jody, and that she was buried with it. Ew! I missed that. Mm-hmm. So that teddy bear that George had picked up from the closet, Jody's closet, is Jody's teddy.
1: Oh my god! That's awful. That night, barking is heard again from outside, and George goes outside. And this is what this is my favorite Ryan Reynolds moment because he's standing on, I guess, that like overlook before you could take steps down to the boathouse, and he yells, Oh my God! (laughs) And it's just like the line he delivers in Just Friends. And it was a little bit of comedic relief for me in a moment that was very disturbing and tough. But good thing the scene doesn't last very long and quickly the next day comes. It's day 28 now. Oh yes, which as we know is the final day. Kathy is a woman on a mission. So she goes to the library and does some research and discovers through a very like long research chain, she did a really nice job connecting these sources (laughs) that the house once belonged to a culty preacher named Reverend Jeremiah Ketchum who had a reputation for torturing and killing Native Americans, trying to convert them to Christianity, I'm assuming, in the 17th century. Yeah, there were
0: 20 bodies found in the lake, and then multiple, quote-unquote, experiments in the basement. And apparently, he slit his own throat so that his presence would live forever in the house. And I'm like, what? This is where Ketchum becomes important, because remember, Ketchum with a K, mm-hmm. Ketchum, ah-ha-ha, uh, ha, okay, we figured it out. Uh-huh. And paralleled with this research montage, you see George ripping the wall out, the part of the wall that the dog had been biting at. There's maggots behind it, and then he knocks down this part of the wall behind this brick. It kind of reminds me of the scene in Mother in the Basement, where oh, she's, yeah. like, taking apart the brick. While she's doing this research, we see him walking through these hallways where there's almost like these jail cells of mutilated bodies, almost in saw traps. That's what it looks like. They're just being mutilated and they're being tortured. And then he walks into like an altar and finds Ketchum and watches him ceremoniously slit his throat and then his blood splashes on his face. So we're meant to assume at this point that Reverend Jeremiah Ketchum has now possessed Mm -hmm. George fully. At this point, Kathy has returned to Father Callaway, tells him all about what she learned, and Father Calloway says that Ronnie was saying the same things right before he killed his family.
1: After, what, the 28th day he moved into the basement? Yeah. Okay.
0: I just want to outline, like, the layer of lore here, all right? So- First, in terms of history, you have Reverend Jeremiah Ketchum being a bad, imperialist, colonial, <laughs> crazy man uh-huh. and torturing a bunch of native people in the basement of the Amity Bell house. Okay. Then eventually you have the DeFeo family move in where Ronald Butch DeFeo lived in the basement for 28 days, then became possessed killed his entire family, and then 13 months later, the Lutz family moved in. This is in the universe of the movie, not factually. So in terms of what is the haunting and what is impacting, the same dude, Jeremiah Ketchum, has possessed Ronald to kill his entire family and now is possessing George to do the same thing.
1: And I think the reason he is possessing George is because George has his office in the basement. Yes. So even though he's like living down there at this point because shit's bad in his marriage... He put his office down there and is spending the most time. So he's been down there for 28 days. Which is the magic number.
0: It's the magic number. It's the day. The number.
1: Kathy's on her way home and she is trying to call George to get him to get the kids out of the house. But we know that he's already doing some weird shit and he's not going to pick up the phone. He pulls it off the wall instead. Oh, yeah. That's right. Casual. Just a casual moment. It is raining and it is nighttime because of course it is. Of course it is. So Kathy gets in the house and she is trying to evacuate her children. But then George shows up and tries to kill her. Well, she chases him to the boathouse first because she had
0: asked the kids, where's George? And they said in the boathouse. And then he's like tinkering with his boat. And then there's the whole boat
1: scene. Okay. Okay. This is another moment that I think I blocked from my mind because (laughs) I had such a problem with this. Kathy goes to the fucking boathouse. Kathy is a very capable woman. However, for some fucking reason, and we could say it's raining, it's wet, it's slippery. Well, she's in like the boathouse shed. There's no water on the ground. She slips and falls. Well, he shines a flashlight in her face and it disorients her for a second. Which is not to say that like... It's beneath Kathy. It's It's beneath her. I don't see it making any sense. But yes, fine. Shines a flashlight in her face. She's disoriented, even though she's firmly planted on the ground with her (laughs) feet. She stumbles into the water head close to the propeller, right? Because the boat is backed into the space. (sighs) (laughs) George turns on the boat and the propellers pull Kathy's hair into the propellers. And then George just stops the propeller, which is like, okay, I'm sorry. But if that would happen, if your hair got caught in the propellers of a boat, I don't think you could just like stop it. Like it would be over Over. yeah there's no control there so not only does George stop it he starts the propellers again then stops it again and then reverses it and then she's out of the water and she's like pissed at him because he totally was gonna let her die yeah
0: Well, because he was looking at her in the water and was having this moral conflict because he was looking at her face, but then it was morphing into a demon face. Yeah. I think she fell into the water when the propeller was already on because he was sitting on his boat and like using a flashlight and looking into the water and seeing a bunch of the ghosts in the water and he was trying to use the propeller to kill
1: them, I think. I just felt like it was such a strange thing. But yeah, I guess that's her cue to evacuate the kids herself, which she tries to do.
0: Chelsea's in the basement, you know, she goes down and then finds caskets
1: with their names written on them. She does. Which also, George builds four caskets in the last, like, 40 minutes. I mean, he's got a lot of wood. I guess. and Maybe he's a, that's okay. his secret
0: project down there. I don't know.
1: A little hokey to me, but fine. All right, George. Fine, I'll give it to you. George has caught up at this point and
0: takes Chelsea away from Kathy and says, I think she misses her daddy, don't you? <gasps> very threatening. Kathy and the kids run away. They barricade George into the basement. He tries to follow with a rifle. He eventually gets out of the basement. And as Kathy and the kids are trying to exit the house, the doors and windows are slamming in their face. So the house is really trying to keep them put. But George is able to subdue Kathy for a little bit. Then Billy intervenes and frees her. So everybody runs upstairs with George in hot pursuit. And now everyone's on the roof again. Can we get an orphan first
1: kill part two? (laughs) Because this is exactly what it reminded me of. (laughs) Yes. Yes. They have a little bit of a head start enough where they are able to go down the slope of the roof and Kathy gets the kids onto the ground.
0: Billy clobbers him off the roof.
1: So he's already on the ground because Billy gets the hit. I'm sure he's been waiting to get for the last however long. And right when they're all on the ground, George starts to wake up again. Kathy, at this point, has taken his gun from him and she's holding it at him. But she cannot bring herself to pull the trigger. It seems like he might lunge at them again, but then she knocks him out again with the butt of the rifle. And you could tell, like, in kind of this comedic moment that she hated having to do it, but she's doing what she has to do. Her and the kids drag him to the boat. There's a dream
0: sequence, Fake Out too, where George wakes up and gets Kathy in the gut with the axe. I hated that. I genuinely thought it happened and I was scared. That's what I thought too. But then it's a dream sequence and it didn't actually happen, which they do a couple dream fake outs in this movie that I don't appreciate. But George wakes up and says, kill me or I'll kill you. So then Kathy knocks him out again. And then, <laughs> yes, the whole family drags him to the boathouse. I love Billy in this moment because they're all trying to get him onto the boat and Billy's like, why are we taking him? Yes. Just leave him. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, Billy. <laughs> but Kathy realizes it's about the house and it's not about him. But also like, I hate this. What is the limit to the house's influence? Because he all of a sudden gets to this boathouse and he has a fucking seizure with this saw editing where he's like seeing all these flashing moments of Jody in the house and the haunting and then all of a sudden like he seems fine again. He, like, seizes on the dock before going into the boat. It looks like an exorcism almost, but I'm like, what the fuck caused this? It doesn't matter. I don't know know if it's supposed to
1: symbolize Ketchum leaving his body and, like, his old memories and consciousness returning. But nothing was done to, like, deserve that. Right. I agree.
0: All of them are in the boat. They drive away. George wakes up and he's normal. These kids need therapy. (laughs) I'm like, throw him overboard. I don't give a fuck. Tie him up and throw him overboard at this point because I'm not going to trust this fucker This family will never recover. No! So then we get, you know, some text on a screen saying, after 28 days, the Lutz family fled Amityville. They never returned for their personal
1: possessions. Not true. Doesn't matter.
0: But then we just, oh, I hate this ending. I hate
1: it. So we get a shot of our girl Jody standing in the foyer with her teddy bear looking forlornly, we suppose, at the front door, feeling sad that the family has gone. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, that pair of disembodied arms comes up, grabs her, and pulls her beneath the floor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Roll
0: titles. Roll titles. All right, so let's talk about what actually the fuck happened. <laughs> Yay! And how this movie just really took a lot of shit and <sighs> liberties and ran with it. So on the accuracy, and this comes from the article, The Better of Two Evils, 15 Years of the Amityville Horror by Stephanie Cole, George Lutz claimed that film producers embellished or fabricated events portrayed in the 1979 and the 2005 remake. His son Christopher claimed in an interview in 2005 that the only thing Hollywood got right is that our family moved in the house and then we left. <laughs> oh, damn.
1: Damn. <laughs> That's not a very good percentage. No.
0: The book alleged a false claim that the house was built on land where the local Shinnecock tribe abandoned their mentally ill, a frankly racist fiction adamantly refuted by tribal leaders. The original film retained this, Hmm. using it to claim that the house is built on a portal to hell... Oh my. The 2005 Amityville goes further. Instead of a house cursed by indigenous people, the remake makes the origin slightly less problematic. <laughs> Instead, atrocities committed by a Puritan minister against the Shinnecock are the root of the hauntings. It's still a fabrication that puts indigenous people in a stereotypically passive role, but it re-centers the blame on colonialism and gives the house's evil a more dramatic focus than the vague explanations of the 79 film. So both suck, but 2005's is less egregious. So this comes from the Amityville Horror Wiki the whole idea is Jody is a huge part of this movie. And the movie frames Jody as the daughter of the DeFeo family. But Jody is not a daughter of the DeFeo family. She's uh-uh. made up. She was in the book, though, as like the imaginary friend. Well, that's what she is. So the character of Jody was not a child who died in the DeFeo murders. Jody was the imaginary friend of Missy Lutz, who is Chelsea in the movie, as suggested by George Lutz. The book added the idea that Jody was more than an imaginary friend it was a demonic pig. Okay, oh, okay. Amityville Horror, the 1979 film, added more to the lore as it actually being a large pig that could be seen from the windows of the house. The 2005 film revamped Jody to be a daughter of Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Louise DeFeo. It should be noted that the real DeFeo's never had a daughter named Jody, so it's entirely possible that she is the remake's incarnation of Allison DeFeo, who was the 13-year-old daughter who died in the actual murders. There was also Don DeFeo, who was 18, but Allison was 13, who was closer to the look of this ghost. Mm -hmm. So maybe... But yes, Jody was not an actual person, which, I mean, at least I'm glad that if you're using like a malevolent spirit with a name, that it's not the name of somebody who was actually murdered. I'm glad that they fabricated that portion of it. But in terms of the actual Amityville haunting having to do with a little girl and a teddy, like that never happened. So on the Warrens involvement, because this is going to set us up for next week when we talk about The Conjuring... (laughs) On the night of March 6th, 1976, the house was investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren, a husband and wife team self-described as demonologists. Oh my god,
1: I thought it said dermatologists.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They really like their skincare. Demonologists, together with a crew from a television station in New York. During the course of the investigation, Gene Campbell, who worked for the television station took a series of infrared time-lapse photographs. One of the images allegedly showed a demonic boy with glowing eyes who was standing at the foot of a staircase. Now, I have linked this photo for at least to look at. Yes, a link right there. So this photo apparently was taken during their investigation. No way. Exactly. That's the reason I linked it, because if you look at this photo, maybe we'll share it. I don't know. The photo is speculated to be of John Matthew, age nine, who was the youngest DeFeo child who died in the murders. But if you look at this photo, it is like it's a legitimate person. Yeah, I like agree. It is unlike any ghost photo I've ever seen. Also, as somebody with light eyes who's gotten photos taken of me as I was a kid, like I've had like red eye in every single photo I've ever had taken of me prior to the iPhone. That's all this looks like. Mm -hmm. is like a kid
1: with light eyes got his photo taken. Yeah, and the flash just kind of like caught. I don't really like looking at it, but it's not really making me feel like it's a ghost. So the
0: photograph did not emerge to the public until 1979 when George and Kathy Lutz appeared on the Merv Griffin show to promote the release of the first film. 112 Ocean Avenue was also investigated by parapsychologist Hans Holzer. The Warrens and Holzer have suggested that the house is occupied by malevolent spirits due to its history. The Warrens' visit to the house was depicted in the 2016 film The Conjuring 2.
1: Okay.
0: So the last bit we have here, I just titled busted <laughs> oh, shit. which talks about you know how a lot of us think of the amityville house and its lore and this comes from was amityville horror based on a true story by snopes many people express doubts about the events in the house researcher rick moran for example compiled a list of more than a hundred factual errors and discrepancies between anson's true story and the truth The 2005 remake promises to mine Anson's book more deeply than it did in previous screenplays, including background about the early Native Americans whose vengeful spirits may lurk nearby and the devil-worshipping early settlers of the area. Yet, Moran explains, "'Experts told me that the tribe mentioned was not from the Amityville area at all. Actually, they had inhabited the eastern tip of Long Island 70 miles away, and that the settlers mentioned were never local residents either.'" Hmm. Anson's tactic was clear— when strapped for good material for a book, pat it with quasi factoids. Oh, God. <laughs> Father Pecoraro, the priest who was driven from the house by demons, according to Moran, who interviewed Pecoraro, he said he never saw anything in the house. Oh. Again, a reminder, Jay Anson wrote the amiable Horror book that was written in collaboration with the Lutzes. So it's not like he took this book and like embellished a shit ton so he could get a good story. The Lutzes co-signed on this. Joe Nickel, author of Entities, Angels, Spirits, Demons, and Other Alien Beings, who personally visited Amityville and interviewed later owners, also found numerous holes in the Amityville story. A few examples of these discrepancies. The Lutzes could not have found the demonic hoof print in the snow when they said they did, because weather records showed there had been no snowfall to leave prints in. And is that in the book? I think it is. Because that's not in this movie, but it could have been in the original.
1: The main demon in the book is that pig. Yeah, there was no pig in this movie. No, Not a pig to be found. But I think in the original movie there was. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar. It was like on their like front door stoop or something like that.
0: Though the book details extensive damage to the home's doors and hardware, the original locks, doorknobs, and hinges were all untouched.
1: I feel like I remember there was a part in the book where the door was ripped off its hinges. Yeah, that did not happen <laughs> in this movie. The closest thing that happened was like the unlocking of the boathouse. Nothing really happened to those doors other than being unlocked.
0: No, and the windows just kept flying open. But like, yeah, other than that, the book and film show police being called to the house. I guess the original because it wasn't in this movie. They do have police come.
1: The the thing that I feel like we miss in this movie is that Christmas and New Year's literally happen. happen. Yeah, And they don't even talk Address about it. it.
0: It's that they don't even act like it's wintertime, honestly. Mm -mm, Like they move in and it's a summer day and then it's getting like September, October. I know. During the 28-day siege that drove the Lutz family from the house they never once called the police, where they claim they did. The real family. Over and over, both big claims and small details were refuted by eyewitnesses, investigations, and forensic evidence. Still, the Lutz is stuck to their story, reaping tens of thousands of dollars from book and film rights. The truth behind the Amityville horror was finally revealed when Butch DeFeo's lawyer, William Weber, admitted that he, along with the Lutzes, created this horror story over many bottles of wine. The house was never really haunted, the horrific experiences they had claimed were simply made up. Jay Anson further embellished the tale for his book, and by the time the film's screenwriters had adapted it, any grains of truth there may have been were long gone. While the Lutzes profited handsomely from their story, Weber had planned to use the haunting to gain a new trial for his client. George Lutz reportedly still claims that the events are mostly true, but has offered no evidence to back up this claim. The Lutzes' account was likely influenced by another fictionalized story, that of The Exorcist. In fact, it is not much of a stretch to suggest that The Exorcist strongly influenced the Amityville story, Recall that The Exorcist came out in December 1973, and demonic possession and hauntings were very much in the public's mind when the Lutzes spun their stories of diabolic activity a year or two later. The revelation that the story was based on a hoax has led to embarrassment, especially among the handful of quote-unquote paranormal experts who verified the fictional tale. The Lutzes must have had a good laugh at the expense of the mystery-mongering ghost hunters and self-proclaimed psychics who reported their terrifying visions and verified the house's non-existent demonic residence.
1: Wow. Okay. What do you think? Do you think it was real or not?
0: I mean, as somebody who with her whole chest believes in ghosts... I think it's hard to kill six people in a house and then expect that house not to have any weird vibe to it. Mm -hmm. Do I think that green goo emanated from the walls (laughs) and keyholes and that there was a demonic pig with red eyes? Uh No. But do I think that there might have been cold spots in the house and the doors may have flown open and the windows could have been weird and that they could have heard a voice or two Mm -hmm. maybe? I believe that to a degree, but it's just the matter that they bought into the sensationalism of it all, and they wanted to make a story more than they wanted to just, like, own what happened, because if this happened to me... I feel like I would never want to talk about it. I feel like I would not want to like tell people what happened because I wouldn't want to relive it if it was that traumatic. But it seems like this couple's like, oh, let me go on every talk show and let me talk to everybody and let me get this movie deal. You know what I mean?
1: It's kind of ingenious because weren't they already in financial trouble? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Smells a lot like motive to me. Exactly.
0: I mean, as somebody who would never fucking mess with that Mm-mm. personally because I'm too afraid, I mean, good on them if they can... S- I mean, they're dead now. So I guess it doesn't <laughs> matter. I guess they're sleeping well at night.
1: But
0: I feel bad for these kids who like maybe didn't know that it was fake or, you know, now their memories have been coded in such a way where they think these things happened or maybe they remember them as they are. Maybe they did really happen for them because they were kids. And, you know, when things scare you, you remember them. So I feel bad in that regard. But I think it sets up a very interesting point for us to talk about the Warrens when we talk about the (laughs) country.
1: Yes. Which I'm excited for you to revisit, even if you're not. For those of you who don't know. (laughs) um, And I think we've mentioned this before. The Conjuring was one of the first movies that I ever watched with Shay. We watched it with a bunch of friends. And it was back in the day where I still needed the stars to align to sit down and watch a scary movie. And I cried. Sobbed. I I sobbed with many witnesses. Many witnesses. I remember it was so traumatizing. It was so scary. And I guess it's been about five years. It's been about five years. And so for our Halloween finale, (laughs) (laughs) for my finale, you know, we're going to go back and rewatch it and talk about it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping it'll be a pleasant experience like when I revisited Idle Hands way, way back and was just thrilled with the cinematic masterpiece that that was, despite the scary memories I carried around about it for years. So we'll see how it goes. I don't know. There's a chance I might cry again. But if you want to keep up with us for spooky season and beyond, definitely follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast and, or feel free to email us with any comments, suggestions, anything like that at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.